0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Wednesday, July 25th, Air Force Secretary Heather Wilson sat down for an in-depth interview with Washington Post columnist and associate editor David Ignatius. They discussed America's military readiness, the role of women in combat, and the Secretary's response to President Trump's recent call to create a Space Force, an independent sixth branch of the military. Secretary Wilson, a United States Air Force Academy graduate who served as an Air Force officer from 1982 to 1989, also detailed her priorities for the Air Force's $156 billion budget request for next year, including modernization, accelerating America's space warfighting fighting capabilities and remedying what she sees as a dangerous pilot shortage facing the Air Force. Let's listen.
1: Thank you very much everyone for coming uh, to this uh, latest uh, installment of Securing Tomorrow. It's really my pleasure to have as our guest today Air Force Secretary Heather Wilson. Uh, As I'm going to explain, uh, Secretary Wilson has pretty much the ultimate uh, Washington uh, and certainly Air Force secretary resume. Uh, Just briefly to go through it, she was a graduate of the Air Force Academy in 1982. Mm -hmm. I think that was the third year that women graduated from the Academy so she was one of the very first women to graduate as, as an Air Force cadet and like any air force cadet she wanted to fly planes she had one problem which was that she won a road scholarship <laughs> and so she went to oxford and got her doctorate in nineteen eighty five mm-hmm. so uh... that's one of the most distinguished uh, uh... tokens i can think of uh... she then served uh, with the air force in various positions uh... in europe came back Uh, during the Bush 41, George H. W. Bush administration, and worked on the NSC staff, one of the most exciting times in terms of foreign policy that we've had. Left Washington the Air Force to go form her own uh, defense company. Uh, After that, worked uh, in state government uh, doing uh, public social service uh, work. Then ran for Congress and was a member of Congress for 10 years. Uh, then ran uh, a university uh, specializing in technology and is now back uh, as Secretary of the Air Force. So um, an unusually talented person with special expertise. So it's really a pleasure to to, to have you here. I want to start with the issue that is really preoccupying um, the Pentagon, and, and in particular, the Air Force. And that's the threat that we're seeing mm-hmm. uh, to uh, our defense assets in, in space. Mm-hmm. We have this image of space as the you know, area where N- NASA had its incredible missions. And we kind of know that we have all these communication satellites up, up in space. If we think about it, we know that the Defense Department has a lot of its capabilities in space. But uh, I'd ask you to, to lead us off by talking about uh, what, in recent years, we have come to understand about the threats that exist in space and the way in which space is now a warfighting domain.
2: Yeah. In 2007, the Chinese launched a direct ascent anti-satellite weapon and destroyed one of their own dead weather satellites, created a huge amount of debris on orbit. Um, But they demonstrated the ability to do that. But it's not only that. I think the, uh, the Director of National Intelligence acknowledged publicly earlier this year that they're developing the capability to try to jam satellites, dazzle satellites, and deny us the use of satellites in crisis or war. And they're doing that because we're really good at it. You know, we've been very good at we're the best in the world at space, and we have been since the 1950s, and they've watched us. Uh, there's not a not a mission today that we do in the military that doesn't in some way depend upon space. But we built that, that architecture uh, in space at a time when it was benign. Um, and now, so, you know, it's, we built the glass houses before the invention of stones. So now we have to adjust uh, and make sure that we can defend what we do in space and deter anyone from challenging us there.
1: So uh, if, uh, if I under- understand your point about building glass houses before stones, we have uh, a defense architecture in space through which we project power around the world that's fundamentally vulnerable today, is, would that be an accurate It statement?
2: is vulnerable, but let me explain a little bit about what we do. The, the Air Force has most of the Defense Department space assets. The Navy has some. They have about 12 satellites that they use for some special communications. We have 77 satellites we operate around, around the globe. Of those 77, 31 our global positioning system satellites. So that that blue dot on your phone is provided by the United States Air Force. It's provided by forty airmen working at Schriever Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Thank you,
1: thank you, Air Force. Uh,
2: <laughs> so remember that. When you we get wouldn't know what
1: to do to without that.
2: Right. Um, so so uh, global positioning system, weather satellites, communication satellites, including secure communications, so that the president can be in touch with his forces anywhere in the world if he needs to be. Um, and we we provide that service to uh, to combatant commanders. So those are the things we have. And yes, they are. Um, satellites are really pretty fragile things. Uh, and so so we have to think now about how do we defend the constellation. And it's not always just direct defense. Uh, it may be that in that we that we uh, distribute a network. So. If you have multiple nodes, it's inherently more resilient than if you're relying on one thing. Uh, some of it may be maneuverability. Some of it may be, you know, deception. Um, or uh, uh, so there's a variety of ways to to make sure that the United States can take a punch and and keep on operating.
1: Let me, uh, before we go any further, uh, invite the audience uh, here, and if, if we have a streaming audience on television, to ask questions, which I'll see on my little iPad. Uh, the hashtag is securing tomorrow. So if you have a question for Secretary Wilson as, as our conversation goes forward, uh, please use that hashtag, securing uh, tomorrow. So, uh, Madam Secretary, the, the problem that we're facing as I understand it from reading uh, what's in the literature, is that our principal adversaries, Russia and China, have already jumped into space, are already in the process of of militarizing space. This is not a future challenge. Mm -hmm. This is a challenge right now, today. And I'd ask you to tell us as much as you can. These are Tricky, sensitive areas, but as much as you can about about what's already happened, that the American people should understand what's already vulnerable.
2: Well, as as I you know mentioned, the Chinese demonstrated the ability to launch a rocket. So think of a you know tele, launch a telephone pole and hit an object in low Earth orbit and destroy it. Um, that was a pretty significant demonstration. Uh, uh, and so so there are other things that we believe they're developing the ability to do um for example publicly reported um TASS, the russian news agency last summer uh, said that the the russians were launching the ability to repair their satellites on orbit well if they can repair their own they can also interfere they can with repair
1: them. ours yeah so, t-
2: <laughs> so so I think you know, that's, probably, uh, that's probably what's publicly discussed, where I'd feel comfortable going, David. But we believe that they are developing those capabilities and, um, and that we need to be prepared to defend ourselves. Is, is
1: it possible that there are already uh, uh, weapons up there in space that are, that are not on the ground, trying to get ready to shoot something down, but up there in space already that could pose a threat?
2: I believe that's possible.
1: So that's, that's an important baseline for us to think about, that it's already possible that, that our, our near peer adversaries have these weapons in space. This is a situation where we're trying to now uh, respond to that. So uh, let me ask you to talk a little bit more about your thoughts about how best to, re- to respond. Mm. Uh, The satellites that we put up, because we didn't think about this as a war-fighting domain, are soft. Mm -hmm. What about just hardening uh, satellites so they'd be better able to resist the detonation of of, uh, weapons, nuclear or otherwise, in space?
2: Let's think about the problem. First of all, you need to understand the threat. What are the capabilities they're developing? To, and, and for example, uh, it's different on our different satellite systems. So I mentioned GPS. GPS is actually a really weak radio signal from four different satellites at the same time, does a heck of a lot of math, and tells you how far you are from each of those satellites by, by the timing signal coming off those satellites. We use the timing signal, by the way, also for the ATM machine. So you can't take money out of two ATM machines at exactly the same time. So you don't, you don't get double the credit from your bank. We do that uh, from, from uh, GPS. Um, so, so the biggest risk to GPS is jamming. Because it's a really weak signal. So you think about, um, for those of you who have teenagers who play their music really loud, you can't hear the whisper next to a loud, uh, loud noise. So, so jamming is the biggest risk there. So how are we going to deal with that? Uh, the Air Force is accelerating the deployment of jam-resistant GPS. Uh, so, so on some of our other satellites, the threats may be different. So how do we deal with that? The first thing we need is near real-time situational awareness. Now, what, uh, right now we keep the catalog, the Air Force keeps the catalog for all objects in space greater than about the size of a softball. Um, and it's not good enough now to just check them every week we need to know, are they moving? And if so, where are they going? So it's a little bit, instead of a catalog, or let's take a flight analogy, instead of knowing the flight schedule coming into Reagan Airport today, you need the radar scanning to know exactly where that airplane is right now and where you think it's going. So near real-time situational awareness is the first thing. The second is the ability to command and control the things we have in space. Make them move, make them do things, so that they can protect themselves. So, command and control is the second, and the third is the ability to create effects. In other words, uh, get out of the way, take some some action. Um, uh, and I won't go into detail there, but you can you can have the same analogy in airspace. Some if somebody you know sends a a missile up at one of our aircraft, well, we might use chaff and flares. We might maneuver out of the way. There's a lot of different ways to think about defending yourself. So space situational awareness near real time, the ability to command and control, and the ability to create effects. And those things oriented towards the threat are the way that we're trying to to make space a defend, defendable domain.
1: And let me ask about a, a final uh, kind of defense that's that's most familiar to us when we think about significant military assets in any other domain we think about uh, attack weapon systems that would accompany us uh, that would accompany them so you wouldn't have a carrier task force that didn't have uh, fighter jets that could provide air cover and other assets that could uh, protect those uh, big expensive systems is there a good analogy for, for that in space? Do you, do you think, uh, in effect, you know, uh, 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 attack satellites that would accompany our uh, precious uh, uh, communications and other satellites, is that, is that something that we should be thinking about?
2: Well, I think the United States is determined to protect our capability on orbit. We're going to defend ourselves, and we are developing the capability to do that. And I think probably going beyond that, this is not just a conversation among us. Um, Our our adversaries listen to what I say, too. And uh, I want them to have no doubt that if they seek to contest the United States in space, that we will defend ourselves.
1: All right, adversaries. It's hashtag securing tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Don't send questions, just just, uh... so uh, let me Come to the the question of of what to do about this threat, which you've described uh, well, uh, in the sense of how to organize for it. This has been a big uh, issue that that you've been thinking about now for many months. The president um, in in June, uh, at a a speech at a space forum, uh, said that he had wanted to create a space force, he said, that would be separate. Uh, but equal to the Air Force. The, the Pentagon, as I understand it, is studying this, mm-hmm. and it will complete a feasibility study uh, next month, first of two. But uh, uh, tell us, uh, uh, if, if, you, if you can, about, um, about that process of studying this idea. Uh, I think one thing we worry about is uh, the possible bureaucratic and other costs that could delay response to this very serious and, and immediate real-time mm. challenge. Um, so, how, how do we, uh, how should we think about how to organize
2: for this? One of the things uh, to put this in context: when I was going through the process of confirmation, my opening statement had to be approved by the by the and then. You know, I was the only the second one approved in the in the Defense Department, so it had to go to around the interagency and the, most of the people were people were here from before. And they actually took out the sentence in my statement that referred to space as a warfighting domain. Hmm. So that was a little more than a year ago. Couldn't even say space and warfighting in the same sentence. We now have the president, the vice president, the, re- the reestablishment of a national space council. We have a national space strategy, a national defense strategy that both recognize those. And people, and, and this this year's president's budget, the fiscal year nineteen budget. Increased and accelerated defendable space with seven billion dollars in addition to the to the base budget and reprogrammed another five billion dollars within the budget to accelerate defendable space. So this is this is I am both the chief of staff and I are actually very glad that this is now becoming, people are becoming more aware. Um, and having a debate about what do we do about this as a nation. And that just wasn't really there before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it's tremendously helpful as we advance what we're trying to do to defend our assets on orbit. For me, one of the biggest issues is how do we accelerate acquisition? How do we move the Pentagon forward quickly? Um, uh, Because there's, there's a huge bureaucracy around acquisition and we're doing a number of things to be able, not just in space, but more generally, to accelerate acquisition. I want
1: to, I want to come back to acquisition in a moment because that's been a key uh, area that you focused on and, and one where you've tried to innovate. But just before we leave this question of, of the, um, the president's desire to do more in space, if I hear you, you're saying we, we couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm uh the question is how best to organize for that and are there any uh thoughts you you offer us about the 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 transition and transitional issues i you know i've studied uh, enough military history to see that when you know when we make these transitions they can sometimes be pretty bumpy
3: hmm.
1: um you know when when the uh, air force was initially created out of the army air corps that was really brilliant idea by the way well i mean yeah. <laughs> they, <laughs> The uh, the Marine Corps goes way back in our history, so it's it's not as 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 relevant uh, an idea. But when um, missiles first came in, there was a terrible food fight between the Army and the Air Force about who should run run the the missile program to the point that the uh, Army missile commander, I think, uh, locked out the Air Force general, wouldn't let him come into his base. So, uh, the, you know, there's a, there's a history here. Well, as, as you look at, at this, what would be your sort of um, cautionary points about the things that could end up hurting us if we're not careful as we make the transition?
2: I think the most important thing is to stay focused on the warfighter and maintaining the lethality of the service. No matter, no matter how the org chart boxes go, um, it's all about the ability to, to, uh, to fight and if we, if we keep focused on that and not on you know, which boxes move around, which place in the Pentagon, then we'll do the right thing for the nation. So focus on the lethality of the force. Um, and, uh, and so I think that that's, to me, that's the, the most important thing.
1: And, and if that's primary, that will dr- then drive the decisions in a sensible way. I believe it will. So I, I want to talk a little bit about a, a pet uh, a favorite topic of mine. Um, And that's uh, new weapons technologies, Mm. the the weapons systems that are just over the horizon that often people don't know about, uh, but that are interesting and also pose some often interesting dilemmas uh, about what's appropriate, what's affordable. And let me start with um, one that's been in the news a little bit, and that's uh, hypersonic aircraft aircraft. Uh, hypersonic aircraft, I think, are defined as those that can fly at Mach five or five, five or six. Or, yeah. So you know they're they're just a, an order of magnitude faster than anything that we now um, uh, see. Uh, and uh, hypersonic aircraft are, are I- of interest in part because, uh, according to our former PACOM commander, Admiral. Harry Harris, I'm quoting him uh, back in February, China's hypersonic weapons development outpaces ours. We're falling behind.
3: Hmm.
1: You know, they're already pretty far along in testing these things. So tell this audience a little bit, uh, Madam Secretary, about about how hypersonic technology Hmm. works, why it has military advantages, and what we think the Chinese and Russians have already done.
2: Interesting question. First, uh, it's not actually hypersonic aircraft we're looking at right now. It's hypersonic weapons. So think right. more about cruise missile rather than mm-hmm. analogy rather than aircraft. Although I did recently see an article that, that someone's coming back with the idea of a very fast uh, commercial aircraft again, mm-hmm. um, which will be interesting. But um, uh, so, hypersonic, five, five to six times the speed of sound. Um, what, what the advantage it gives you militarily is you combine speed with precision and range, which are and and it makes it they're very difficult to defend against because they're moving so Would
1: fast. Would our existing anti uh, anti missile technology uh, uh, be ineffective against something, something moving that fast through? through
2: it's space? a difficult problem because of speed and size but it's also a difficult technical problem to get them to work. Um, the temperatures, uh, the aerodynamics are, are extremely difficult technical problems. What the, uh, what the military has done, and this is actually kind of interesting, it's just happened in the last, um, in the last few weeks here, is uh, the service secretaries, we get together for breakfast now every couple of weeks, and, um, and we talk about things we can do together. The, one of our first meetings, we talked about science and technology and where we were Um, and identified this as a high-priority project to work together. Because we each had pieces of programs. The Army's warhead had worked much better than the Air Force's. Uh, The Navy would have to scope that down in in diameter, which takes longer. So we we came up with a memorandum of understanding. We've got all of our people working together, doing best technology. So we're going to take the Army warhead, put it on an Air Force booster, launch it off of a B-52 while the Army is developing on the ground and the Navy wants to put it on a deck of a ship. This kind of collaboration will accelerate testing and deployment by several years. And I think that that kind of cooperation is... Uh, uh, people tell me in the Pentagon it's not supposed to work that way, the, that the service secretaries aren't supposed to get along that well, um, but we do. And, um, and we think that we can accelerate the prototyping and testing of, of a hypersonic weapon by several years so we're talking 20, 2021 2020 possibly to test
1: 2020 you could you could test a, a prototype um, weapon
2: yeah
1: well that's that is that is fast and uh, I must say uh, the idea of the Army Navy and Air Force working collaboratively on any new weapon system that would be um...
2: except for football we don't we have a big that. <laughs> well,
1: that's, we're not, not expecting it to, a joint uh, Army Navy Air Force team anytime soon. Uh, Another um, uh, area of technology, which is one that the United States has possessed, I want to say, unique advantages, and that's been uh, crucial for the Air Force, is stealth technology Mm. that allows our um, uh, planes, drones, et cetera, to pass pretty much unobserved by uh, radar waves. Mm. And reading... uh, I have a particular interest in in quantum technology, because I recently wrote a novel about the Chinese efforts to beat us at the race to develop quantum computers. I I noted recently that the Chinese say they're working on quantum radars, which would have, if they could be made to work, enormous advantages, um, uh, because they would, in effect, split photons and, and see with light what you couldn't see with with radar waves. So it, it's potentially a, a, a very significant break, breakthrough that could render a lot of our stealth, stealth technology vulnerable. And I want to ask you is this, a lot of the stuff that comes out of China I I think is kind of over, over-hyped. It's not as far along as the reports imply. What's your sense about this development?
2: I think the Chinese, particularly, are seeking to deny us advantages where they see we do have advantages. And one of them clearly is in low observable technology. We're really good at it. Um, We never take it for, for granted. And we are always looking at how do we improve our low observable technology, what new capabilities might be out there that could reduce the advantage of it or make it more vulnerable and to try to stay ahead of that. One of the things that, that you know, the chief of staff talks about, people, th- you, can, it, it, you, you can see a low observable plane, even with radar you can, but obviously with the naked eye you can. Um, but um, uh, no country can put a block of wood around their country and kind of you know, like set it on the map and make it impenetrable. At best, it's Swiss cheese. And it's really more like fondue because the bubbles move. <laughs> uh, our job <clears throat> is to find the bubbles w- and exploit them when we need to. And we don't need to all the time. I mean, if, For example, if a carrier strike group is coming through the Straits of Hormuz, we need air superiority over them for the time in which they transit. We don't need it continuously 365 days a year. So, so um, Uh, we are constantly looking at the fondue um, from an airspace point of view and how we continue to be able to dominate when and where we want to. We take air superiority for granted in this country because we've been so good at it. And you think about it, the last time an American soldier or Marine was killed on the ground from enemy aircraft, the last time was April 15th, 1953, when, the, when soldiers or Marines from the United States or our allies hear aircraft over them, they don't even have to look up because they know it's us. That breeds a certain complacency about how difficult it is to maintain air superiority, but we're determined to, to maintain it.
1: I should just interrupt to ask you about one thing that uh, we're beginning to think about just in terms of the air traffic control problems, Mm. but it's a warfighting problem too, and that's uh, adversaries' acquisition of drones. Mm. Is that something that you're spending time thinking about, and how should our audience think about the proliferation of drone technology?
2: Well, it's a, it's a, it's an issue in American airspace, and not just for the military. It's an issue for for commercial and civil aviation as well, um, because they're they they're now you know much cheaper, much smaller, much faster. A lot of you know, even kids have them, um, and uh, it's a it's an issue. It's a safety issue, a safety of flight issue. Um, but uh, but you know, there are more and more uh, countries that have we call them remotely piloted aircraft or drones. And the United States has a lot of them as well. So so a lot of emphasis has gone into the development of that technology over time. And there are, there are places where we would put a drone where we would not put a manned aircraft because of the risk.
1: Unfortunately, nobody has um, sent in a question to Hashtags Securing Tomorrow about the bubbles in the Fondue. Fondue. But I invite somebody to
2: Did you ask, get what I'm talking about? Uh,
1: well, I, I think so. But I, I want to ask, ask somebody to pose a question so we can okay. think more about those bubbles uh, and how to get inside them. But there is a question uh, from uh, Charles on Twitter who asks, "How has the emergence of commercial launch providers like Orbital and SpaceX affected the Air Force space mission? Good question.
2: It's a great question. So the, the Air Force runs the launch facilities. Um, at Cape and also at Vandenberg and uh, we also launch, uh, we're responsible for the launching of national security payloads. We no longer build rockets, we buy launches. And we have we have invested in research and development in many of these companies. But we buy uh, uh, launches from SpaceX. We bought one just region, recently from Virgin Galactic, which is a new way, uh, they, they have a 747 and, and launch a rocket from under the wing. So they fly up to 30,000 feet or so and then launch the launch the, uh, the payload from there on a rocket to go up to, to orbit. It's a very different approach. Uh, and then United Launch Alliance, we buy launches from them. So there's a lot of innovation going on in the launch industry driven by commercial providers and we're benefiting from it. The cost of launch is plummeting. You combine that with the decreasing size of payloads and there's a lot more you can do from space today commercially than you could do a decade ago. So it's really changing and we're trying to benefit from it. We also are trying to benefit from it, and we talked a little about acquisition, but we, uh, and and how do we drive forward national security space? We, uh, in January, we decided to set up a consortium. Um, It now has, I think, 160 some companies that are part of it. We initially put $100 million into it to try to get innovation into our own systems. Of those 160 or so, 124 are small companies, innovative companies that don't normally do business with the Defense Department because we're too hard to do business with. Uh, We we had so many companies want to participate, we increased it to 500 million. We've already signed three contracts. We've got another one in negotiation for small satellite tests and payloads. Um, And uh, it's 93 days between solicitation and contract award. Uh, so very fast, very, very simple contracts to get rapidly innovating um, uh, companies involved with national security space.
1: Let's t- talk about acquisitions <clears throat> a little bit more. We'll come back to weapon systems if we if we have time. But I know uh, acquisition, proc- procurement issues have been a, a big uh, f- focus of yours. Um, talk a little bit about, about what the nature of the problem mm. is why does it take so darn long to, for the Pentagon to buy things why do they cost so much mm. and we all know the examples from back in Les Aspen's day of the toilet seats that cost you know five hundred dollars and you know the good on the list uh, but but this has been a problem really since the creation of the Defense Department mm. and um it, it, it's, it does seem as if, for all the innovative small projects to try to
3: mm-hmm.
1: speed up acquisition, the kind of behemoth
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, uh, survives, uh, you know, uh, and, and continues lumbering into the future. How, what's the, why is why does it take so darn long and cost so much? And what what really can you do to to change that?
2: Well, we've set it up really that way with regulations and so forth. Um, fortunately, the Congress has given us some new authorities to get to, to get faster and to move, delegate authorities further down to program managers who can be held accountable. Uh, right now, accountability is just kind of diffuse around this huge bureaucracy, and, and it's very, very slow. So we're trying to take advantage of those new authorities. Um, We've delegated a lot of authority down to program managers. We're changing the way we govern our acquisition enterprise to look at speed, performance, um, and uh, and accountability. Not like we're managing 500 small projects, but across the the enterprise. We're also uh, we're we're doing more prototyping, experimentation. The the old way of doing doing procurement of a new system is uh, we'd have two or three years of studying the analysis of alternatives to a complicated cup, and then we'd set a requirement for it. And you'd be two or three years into this before you've even built anything. Um, Then we'd build it, um, but we didn't really know a lot about what the challenges would be. And and so there's there's people are then unhappy that you didn't meet the requirements. Instead, we're now going to start prototyping early, figuring out what's within the realm of the possible, then setting the requirements and going rapidly to acquisition. Those are new authorities. The other one is 70% of our cost of of aircraft is actually in the maintaining of the aircraft. It's the spare parts and all of those things. Um, We are uh, are, uh, just setting up, we call it the Rapid Sustainment Office. There are new technologies in manufacturing that mean we don't have to go out to a supplier, some of whom are no longer in business, Just in the first quarter of this year, we had 10,000 requests for parts that weren't there wasn't even a single bidder because the company is no longer in business. They have you know there's no business case for one part. This is actually the trim wheel for the rudder trim on a KC-135 tanker. Um, If you don't have it, you can't fly. It's a vital piece of equipment. The company that makes them is no longer in business. We reverse engineered this and 3D printed it. Uh, we, are, we are announcing this week that we are starting a rapid sustainment office to do more 3D printing, um, robotics on the, uh, on, the, on the depot line. Uh, another one uh, is called cold spray, which is repairing of metals rather than replacing them. So using advanced techniques to drive down the cost of parts. This part cost about 50 bucks, 55 bucks, in all, including all the engineering and everything else. If I had to go out to industry and have them set up the traditional way to do it and buy one part, this is over 700 bucks. So we can drive down the cost for a part that is airworthy.
1: Let me ask you about a, a particular uh, innovation, uh, set of innovations that your new Assistant Secretary for Acquisition, Will Roper, mm-hmm. uh, has uh, uh, proposed. I heard him when I was traveling Mm-hmm. with Secretary Wilson to the Space Symposium, so-called, in Colorado Springs. And he, he talked the language, if you will, of Silicon Valley, the language of, of fail fast, of take risks. Not what you hear from government procurement officers. Isn't he great? So <laughs> it, is, it is new uh, and refreshing. But th- tell us a little bit about your uh, charge to to Will Roper. Why you think he's the right person for that uh, job, and what you hope he might do uh, in shaking up the whole way we think about acquisition?
2: First, he's technically highly competent. He's a, he's a uh, actually a physics from Georgia Tech, and then another Rhodes Scholar, PhD in mathematics, worked at the MIT Lincoln Lab, came in and worked for DARPA, which is one of the one of the most admired um, technology agencies in the country. And then set up the um, this the uh, equivalent of the Rapid Capabilities Office is called the SCO for the Defense Department. Before he came to be our Assistant Secretary, so he understands technology, but also how to move technology fast. And and uh, uh, we've now given him the portfolio to be able to say, all right, push authorities down, go quickly, um, empower your program managers to prototype and experiment, connect to the warfighter and we're doing it across the board. It's uh, it's actually kind of an exciting time in Air Force acquisition.
1: We we like to say uh, take risks and fail fast, but one thing I've observed over many years is that Washington and the military in some ways most of all, whatever we say is a zero defect culture. Mm -hmm. You screw up once and you're basically finished. How do you change that?
2: You know, it didn't used to be that way, and I think we're in some ways getting back to our roots. Um, the uh, uh, it, I call it, with, it used to be with in engineering students, failing productively. You want productive failure. There's a reason we call these experiments, is because you're learning something. If you prototype something, you learn from it, and then you tweak your design, so you're you're, you're failing productively, and then you, then you move on. You reduce the risk. And in fact, uh, one of the best examples of this is software. The, the military has been terrible about buying software. Anybody who has ever written, and, and it doesn't really need to be software code, imagine if your novel, you wrote it all the way through, never went back to check anything, got to the end and turned it in to be checked. What is the probability that you get a mistake? like 102% almost. I mean, I. sorry. but It's
1: embarrassing it, <laughs> even to think about that.
2: <laughs> you do that with software, and it, it's, it's inevitable you're gonna have problems, and it's a lot harder to find the problems if you do it in big chunks. We are now shifting to agile development of software, in some cases, updates overnight. So the risk is just yesterday's work that you have to debug. And, and uh, that agile development gets capability of the warfighter faster, and reduces the risk of uh, of having bugs in your code. And so you you de- debug it as you go. Uh, it's much faster, much better, and we're having a lot of success with it.
3: it
1: makes me think of a of a, of a question that uh, if if I don't ask you, I'd get a hard time from my wife, who's a computer scientist. Um, and a defense researcher, and that is—you're um, obviously an example of a, of a woman with a, a mastery of, of science and technology. But there's there's a long-standing question of how more women can be drawn into mm-hmm. the STEM areas. And, and I'm curious—you're, you know, at the, at the top of uh, people in our government who were uh, mastering these complex issues. How, how can this area be more um, supportive for women? Um, how can government, private industry encourage mm-hmm. women to, to, get, to get involved earlier and, and more effectively?
2: As, as you mentioned, I was the president of a science and engineering university before I, I uh, uh, came back to federal service. And, uh, and of course, one of the things we were trying to do was encourage more girls, more young women, to go to engineering school, engineering and science school. One of the things we found is that if you look at teenagers, um, more boys, there's an overlap in the middle, but more boys are are satisfied by solving the problem. They get satisfaction out of, you know, fixing something, solving a problem. Disproportionate number of girls want to know why the problem matters. So if we say, you know, come be an engineer, you can do cool stuff, we're talking to the boys. If you say, if you want to make a difference in someone's life, if you want to have clean water or save the life of a family member you love um, or make the environment cleaner or provide energy to the world, be an engineer, then we're talking to both boys and girls and I think that sometimes the way in which we talk about engineering is not resonating with our daughters and it is with our sons
1: and is that something that, that you're trying to push yourself as, a, as an initiative
2: well my daughter's studying engineering does that <laughs> no, I, I, uh, <laughs> um, I, I have to say that uh, I think I'm trying to both personally, but also in the way we, we uh, try to recruit. And, and it's not just, um, you know, we have a, this issue in the, the Air Force of, uh, about pilots, we have a pilot shortage. But when we look at uh, the people who are currently pilots in the, uh, in the Air Force, and when we look even nationwide, a small percentage are women. A small percentage are also minorities, too, and that's also an issue. We did something this summer that I'm kind of excited about. Um, we were saying, all right, we got a pilot shortage. We know that less than 10% of Air Force pilots are minorities in America today. That is that is very, very small compared to the American um, populace. So what can we do? And uh, the data says that minorities and women decide later. Um, so it's Uh, It's high school or college rather than in middle school that they think they may want to fly. So we have junior ROTC in a lot of places around the country. Here's an interesting fact, 58% of the kids in junior ROTC, so in high schools, 58% of them are minorities. So we started scholarships. We made 120 of them this summer. We partnered with seven, eight universities, so University of North Dakota, Auburn, Emory-Riddle, and we. we sponsoring, we're sponsoring 120 kids from Junior ROTC, so they've already said they're interested in the military a little bit, to get their private pilot's license, full ride scholarship, go live on a college campus, and learn to fly. With, there's no commitment to come into the Air Force, and the neat thing is, when they're that cohort they're with, they're not the one, they're not the you know the one girl or the one minority and a hundred boys. Um, and uh, so we got 120 of that. We didn't make a big splash about it because we only had 120 slots initially. We had 800 kids apply, hmm. high school kids, from junior ROTC. So for inspiring the next generation of aviators, this one may work, but we're going to watch it pretty carefully and try not to screw it up. So.
1: Um, I have a, a, a question that's come in on, on, uh, on Twitter from Peyton. Uh, And Peyton asks, given that the intelligence community has made mention of a national strategy to address threats to cybersecurity and AI, Mm. does the Air Force plan to adopt a national strategy to work with the private sector in the development of orbital technology?
2: We actually do work with the private sector on orbital technology. We don't, you know, we contract all of our satellites. We also work in some cases with, we buy services like a lot of our satellite um, communication services we buy rather than actually purpose build. Some of them we purpose build for specific reasons. Um, and we also in some cases will we'll, uh, purchase a ride on somebody else's satellite. Put, uh, that's pretty cost effective as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also complicates the calculus of any adversary. So if we have a ride on somebody else's satellite might not even be a U.S.-based satellite. Might not be a you know, national satellite uh, or a U.S. company. That complicates the calculus of any adversary when they're thinking about denying us that capability because they have to take down, you know, a system run by another country. So we're, we do that a lot.
1: I ask a question uh, uh, on which a lot of the themes that we've discussed this morning, I think, come together, and that's. Um, uh, the Air Force is uh, planning for a new uh, early warning launch detection mm-hmm. satellite system. I think this is known in Pentagonese as SPURS, SBIRS, Space-Based infrared. infrared Systems. Everybody knew that, but I just thought I'd repeat. So um,
2: I, have, I charge twenty-five cents an acronym in my
1: office.
2: <laughs> <by> <laughs> I'm going to make millions.
1: Uh, you will make millions. Uh, <laughs> So uh, this uh, procurement is, is interesting for a couple reasons that I'll mention and then ask you to t- talk about it. First, the reason that we need to replace the system, in part, is because the existing system is soft and vulnerable to attack. And you know, here's the way we detect the enemy launching missiles that could strike us uh, through infrared early warning detection. And holy smokes, they could knock out the detection. Mm-hmm. So that that's 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 scary. Second, uh, it's interesting because the initial proposal to create a new system, as I understand it, the delivery date proposed was twenty twenty nine, basically ten years off. And the third reason this is interesting, and this is what I really would ask you to focus on, is that you and Will Roper, your acquisitions chief, and General Hyten, mm-hmm. uh, head of Stratcom, have said nope, we're gonna deliver this in five years, mm-hmm. which sounds like a long time, but in, in military times, pretty darn quick. So talk us through this, this question of this, the new architecture,
3: mm-hmm.
1: threats to the old one, and how, you know, what you're gonna to do to meet that pretty quick deadline.
2: First of all, what we're talking about. So space-based infrared uh, detects heat. So what we're, it stares at the earth and looks for the signature of a very hot rocket engine. And then calculates very quickly the uh, the uh, uh, the direction and uh, speed of that that. So when you see on the news that there's been a North Korean missile launch and it does that big arc over the world and where it landed, that initially comes within our job is within within minutes to say there's been a launch, this is where it's coming from, this is where it's going, and uh, the command alert the commanders. That's our job, one of our missions. Um, we, are, we have a series of them. They, you know, satellites die after time, and they only have so much fuel and other things. Uh, we, uh, so we replace them on a schedule based on when we expect them to no longer be operational. In this year's budget proposal, in the president's budget, it proposes to cancel what we call space-based infrared seven and eight, which were the ones out in the mid to, mid-2020s, um, because they are, the current design is very large, very immobile, and vulnerable. So we cancel those two and instead, do an alternative technology which we believe is defendable and to accelerate procurement. Um, the, The Congress has asked us, well, do we really need it before 2025? And we may not need it before 2025 and we'll work with them on the dates and the funding profile. But we think that we can use existing technology, a known commercial bus, so we don't have to redesign what it sits on, um, and move rapidly. We we actually let two contracts to begin the development of these competitive, you know, keep the competition there, uh, and we let them in less than six months. We are moving, and I think that's what the nation expects, and uh, and that's what we're going to do.
1: So I have a final question. We have just uh, th- three minutes left uh, with Secretary Wilson, and um, kind of steer away from technology toward uh, culture. Hmm. Every military service, like every effective organization of any kind, has a culture. Mm. And I think it's fair to say that the Air Force's culture, uh, through its history, has been defined by, in some ways, uh, dominated by fighter pilots.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, that's the image of what, you know, we've all seen Top Gun and, you know.
2: Top Gun was Navy.
1: Well, I mean, you know. <laughs> There's still fighter pilots. <laughs> Um, but that does, that does make, remind me that, you know, we'll never have a a unified all service football (laughs) game. Um, so, uh, fighter pilots, you know, may dominate the Navy too, but they certainly have a a, a distinct role in the, in the air force. And I wonder, um, whether you as secretary have tried, uh, in any ways to, to change that culture. Um, the dominance of certain categories of of officers Uh, so so as to make it a more modern Air Force to face the kinds of challenges that we talked about.
2: Mm. Um, I think there are, like most of the services, have different tribes within them. We have the mobility community that gets anything, anywhere, anytime. Uh, And I don't have time, but some wonderful vignettes of things that I've seen what our mobility airmen are doing. Uh, to, to project power globally. The same with the bomber pilots and bomber crews are projecting power globally. So we have, and, and space is a little bit different as well. So we have different tribes. I think one of the things that unites airmen uh, is, uh, that I find everywhere is we're a little bit irreverent and iconic you know, we're not always uh, as hierarchical as the other services. Um, and we're a bunch of bicycle mechanics. Mm. You know, our, our roots are in the innovators, the tinkerers, the ones who figure out a little bit way, a different way to get something done, and get it done better. And it's one of the things I absolutely love about being back with the service, is being out with young airmen, as I was last week in the UK, seeing them do something better. And, they, and they're so excited to be able to show how they figured out some problem, and they're just gonna do it a little better. And it's all about being more lethal for the country.
1: Well, with, with that, uh, I want to thank uh, Secretary Wilson uh, for, for being with us. Um, as I said at the outset, a, a remarkable intellectual background and, and capability for the issues that you're struggling to deal with. And uh, we're really glad to have you here at The Washington Post talking with us this morning. Thank you, thank you so much.
2: Thank you.